Father, we are so blessed uh, to be here and to gather together this night. Father, it warms my heart just to share this time with my brothers and sisters and to be in fellowship together and worship with you and and to pause again midweek. I just love it. I don't think I can make it Sunday to Sunday. Uh, it's so good to stop. And Father, just to press our our heads against your chest and listen to your heartbeat. That's what this feels like to me on Wednesdays. Kind of like John at the Last Supper, leaning in to the breast of Jesus and just just being close to the uh, to the Lord He loves so much. And that's where we are tonight, Lord. We want to press into You. We want to hear the beating of Your heart. We want to know what Your desire is for our lives. But but we want to understand, Father, Your greater will, the big picture of things. We praise You and honor You for Your Word illuminates so much of this for us and actively with your spirit speaking into our hearts and into our spirits Lord it's such a wonderful opportunity for us to to know you better and this is our prayer tonight that we might know you better this is the the sum total of everything that we do of, of why we gather as a church why we exist as a church Lord is to walk more closely with you to know you and love you more So we pray tonight that this would happen. We pray that you would um, reach into our hearts, speak your word into our lives, Lord, and send us out of here doers of the word, not hearers only. May we receive tonight the word implanted in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sunday, we looked at that great story of David and Goliath, specifically comparing... David with the root and descendant of David, Jesus Christ. We took kind of a different look at it. I don't know if it's different than what you've seen before or studied before, but rather than looking at David and saying, how can we be like David? How can, how can we learn to face our giants and be tough and strong and smart and wily like David was? Rather than taking that approach, it's more, how is David like Jesus? Because reality is, I don't do real well in battle by myself, but when I go behind Jesus, when he goes before me, Battles are won. The enemy is decapitated. And I love that about our Lord, the power that he brings and the comfort and security that I have in him. We talked about how David and Jesus were very similar in, 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 in many different ways. Sanctified by the Spirit. They were both shepherds of Bethlehem. Both were sent by their father to take bread to their brothers. Both came seeking a, a, a treasure. You may recall that we studied the the inheritance that was offered to whoever would kill Goliath. And the daughter of of Saul would be given to whoever took out Goliath. And then freedom for the father's house of whoever killed Goliath. And the same with Jesus. He comes seeking that inheritance, that treasure. The inheritance being his father's household. And the, the daughter being the bride, the church. Jesus came looking for his bride. And finally, freedom for his father's house, for the people of Israel. Both Jesus and David were scorned by their brothers. Both David and Jesus were strengthened in their experiences before the final battle. You realize how David fought the lion, he fought the bear, took them out, and then later was prepared. He didn't go into the battle against Goliath without any experience. He had fought before difficult foes. Same with Jesus. He went head to head with Satan before his ministry even began. And then at the end of his ministry, wonderfully, he took 
Satan out on the cross. Both men were stripped of their kingly glory. David could not wear the armor. Jesus literally voided himself. Tanu always the word, Philippians 2.7. He emptied himself of his glory, of his greatness, and came down to literally be a man, though his spirit was in him, though he was fully God and fully man at the same time, he removed that power and that glory. Which is why we talked about the baptism of the Spirit happened to him on the day of his baptism. The Spirit came down upon him and, and now he is empowered for ministry. Both David and Jesus were successful in their faith. But in the greatest comparison, we see how both David and Jesus used the sword of their enemy against them. David would pull out Goliath's sword from the sheep and lop his head off. Jesus took the sword of the cross. He was stabbed in the side with the spear of the soldier. And he took the very weapons that were intended for his demise. And with them, he decapitated the enemy. Don't ever forget the success of that battle. I think sometimes as Christians we do. We forget the success of the cross. That our enemy has been decapitated. Satan has been beheaded and is powerless in your life and mine. To affect his end, which is our demise. He would wipe us all out. He, he doesn't want anyone to be saved. But by way of the cross, we have all been saved, and Satan has no power against that. He cannot stand against it. Satan is like that chicken with his head cut off. And you've seen those. I've talked about this before. An old story my grandfather told me about taking chickens' heads off and tossing the body out, and the bodies would just run. They just run without the head, blood spurting out, and they just run, run, run until they finally ran out of energy and fell over. That's Satan. At this point, headless, running, blood spurting out, doing everything he can in, in the last waning days of the world to try and, and take out people, try and get his blood on them, but he's, one, he's winding down. And eventually, like that chicken with his head cut off, he's just going to fall over. And if that's a little offensive for Satan, thank you, I'm glad. I meant for it to be. Christians, Satan has no more power over you than what you give him. And we need to remember that because I see a lot of Christians giving a lot of power to the enemy that they don't need to give him. Whatever power you give him, whatever fear you have as, as he attacks, as he assaults, that's all he has to use against you. Remember Genesis 3.15. The Lord said to Satan, he shall bruise you on the head. That word bruise is shoof, to break or snap off. He's going to break your head, Satan. And indeed Jesus did on the cross. Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 says he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt de consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him. In that same way that David walked around with the head of Goliath, swinging it around, going back to Jerusalem, coming back to see Saul. He's carrying that head, and it was, it was an absolute public display. It was a shame to the Philistines. Clearly, it was a shame to Goliath, who no longer had his own head. Now, I mention this again tonight, because I want us to consider this thought. Jesus fought for victory. We fight from victory. Jesus fought for victory. We fight from victory. We are not fighting to gain our victory. We don't stand against Satan. We don't stand against the enemy to gain our victory. We have our victory. So we fight from that place. 
of already being victorious. Many of you know, if you've got the email or if you've heard by way of of phone or or conversation this week, that Linda Cheek entered into victory on Sunday night. Linda's been battling cancer. We've had a few people here who have battled cancer. We have some battling cancer even currently as we speak. But I want you to understand something. Some might say that she lost the battle to cancer, and I absolutely disagree. Linda didn't lose. She won. I don't know how you can lose a battle that's already been won. Linda entered into that great victory. It's the place we want to be. Now, not to the point of being suicidal, because God has work for us here. But we all want to be where she is. And I don't mean to undermine or undercut in any way, shape, or form the sorrow that her family and friends and those of us who knew her feel. We have a loss. Our loss. It's not her loss. It's her very great gain. It's our great hope. It's our great desire. The funeral is going to be this Saturday over Mount Vernon. We're going to send out an email to let you know where that is. The memorial service is going to be. But I'll tell you what, it's going to be a celebration because our sister is home. And she's where we long to be, where we want to be. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Always. Not some of the time except when you're having a bad day. Paul writes in Romans 8.37, We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Now I know some would say, well that's a nice sentiment, Rick. But we prayed so hard that Linda would be healed and she died. And so that's just, that's just your Christianese response, right? When healing doesn't happen. That's just what you Christians, oh well she was, she was ultimately healed. She was really healed, even though the healing didn't happen here. Listen. I wrote this down. I hope this will make sense to you. Dying in the Lord is never a Christian cop-out to a lack of physical healing. Let me read that again. Dying in the Lord is never a Christian's cop-out to a lack of physical healing. We don't say, praise God, Linda received ultimate healing because, wow, she really wasn't healed in the flesh. We say, praise God, she has been healed in the most ultimate way a person can be healed because that's what we believe. Because that's the truth. And, you know, it's, it's been 43 years of my life of the Lord trying to get this, instill this into me that there truly is a better place than here. That there truly is uh, somewhere I'm going that I want to be more than I want to be here. And the older I get, the easier it is to see that. When I was younger, I didn't see it so much because there was so much of life ahead of me and I, and I didn't want to miss any of it. And yet I would even speak to those of you who are teenagers here. I would say, it is better there than it is here. As long as you're here and you embrace the joy of the Lord and you do the work that God has called you to and you ask Him what it is day by day He has you here to do. You don't take yourself out early just to be there sooner. But you embrace this life knowing that what's coming is so much superior to anything we will ever experience here. And that's why Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56, he says, The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, listen, knowing, don't miss this, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
Every single prayer that was lifted up on behalf of Mike and Linda Chief, not a single word was in vain. Not a one. I have it, but she died. Yeah, and she lives. And not a single thing. I, I talked to Mike just last night. I am blown away by the faith. Yeah, this is hard for him. But he is, he is talking in a language that is the language of heaven. He is talking the language of faith and joy in knowing where his wife is. And so we praise God that in His will, in His determination, the best thing was to take Linda. We praise Him for that. We don't think of it as well as long as she wasn't healed, at least we know she's going to heaven. I mean, how sad is that? Well, at least she got in to be, you know, with the Lord, at least. Goodness sakes. There is no at least. It's wow. At best, that's where she is. It's wonderful. It's the place to be. Jesus fought for victory. As long as we're here, we simply fight from victory because we are victorious. Now we talked about in the story of David and Goliath that we are not so much like David. David is a picture for us of Jesus. We, however, are like another character who comes up at the tail end of the story. We are like Jonathan. Chapter 18, verse 1. It came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as, he, as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Everything that Jonathan would use to defend himself, everything that Jonathan would use to fight his own battles, he handed over as he knit himself to David. And that's us. We fight from victory. The victory's been won. The, the enemy beheaded. And so we lay down our web. We don't go into the fight. I was speaking with a, with a dear sister just this last week who, it's interesting, in her life, some of you know her so I won't say her name, but in her life she has come from being kind of more of a Joan of Arc to now finally being a Mary. A year ago, even two years ago, I would have looked at this, at this woman and said, boy, she's like Joan of Arc. She wants to go out and fight the fight. She's the one who would talk to me about, now listen, when we come back with Jesus riding on, on the horses and stuff, you know, we follow him and Revelation 19 talks about that. Do we get to fight? She wanted to fight. I want to, I want to engage in the battle. I want to take a spirit. So I just, you know, I want to fight the fight. And then Joan of Arc, I, I thought, you know, she's, she's a fighter. Some things have transpired in her life over the last year. Difficult things. But it brought her to the point now where she's laying down her weapons and she just wants to sit at Jesus' feet, like Mary. She realizes she doesn't have the strength to fight. And if you haven't realized that yet, let me just tell you, you don't have the strength to fight. You don't have the strength to win a victory. It's already been won. And so we lay down like Jonathan. We strip ourselves of the robes of our, of our uh, circumstance. We give over our authority of ourselves. We hand over our armor, sword, bow, and belt. We give this to Jesus and we say, we stand behind you. And when we go into any battles, we go in calling upon the name of Jesus to go before us. A couple of things to notice here. There, there are two responses to the impact of David's victory in chapter 17. In him taking out Goliath, two very clear but very distinct and different responses. The first one is Jonathan's. Jonathan removes himself from the throne. 
You realize that's, that's what he's doing here. As he strips himself of the robe and gives over his armor, he's saying, in essence, okay, David, I'm the son of the king. I'm next in line. But I submit to you. I give it all to you. Now, I don't even know at this point if Jonathan knew David had been anointed to be the next king. But Jonathan takes off his royalty and hands it to David. Says, it's yours. I remove myself. He makes a covenant with David and he strips himself of every symbol of his own right to rule. He dethrones himself in this moment. It's a powerful thing that Jonathan is doing and saying here. And this covenant, he cuts covenant. We've talked about covenant a lot in the past. Then when two people would make a covenant together, they would literally, the word for covenant means to cut. And they would cut an animal in half, literally lay either half on either side, and they would pass through the two halves together. And in so doing, they would literally be saying, now this is what's going to happen to you if you break this covenant. You're going to be like this animal. I will keep this covenant with you. And so Jonathan does that. I don't know if he did it with an animal, but he certainly cuts covenant with David. He removes himself from the throne. He strips himself of his right to rule. This prince of Israel, who was very easily the next heir in a monarchy, but he hands it off. How about you? How about me? Where, where are you at with the throne room in, in your life? Are, are you the one on your own throne? Or, or is Jesus there? Or maybe Jesus was there at one time. But you find yourself continuing to want to get back on that throne, back in control, back in, in rule, and in authority over your life. I don't know if that happens to you, it does to me from time to time. I keep wanting to wrest control from Jesus' hands until I recognize what's going on and recognize I don't have the power and the strength He has, and I step back and say, <laughs> Take it, take it, Lord. I don't need it. I, I can't do what you can do. And so, Jonathan, he removes himself from the throne. And I'm invited to strip my spirit, to bear my soul to the Lord, to hand my life and my power over to Him because He is the right King. Revelation 19.6 tells us on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we step back. Like Jonathan, that's Jonathan's response to David. He removes himself from the throne. The impact of victory is a little different on King Saul. Saul rejects David's right to the throne. That's his response. Look at verse 5. David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. Set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing. They came to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played, verse 7, and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Oops. (laughs) And Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he says, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? In other words, what's next? My throne? The people love him so much. The only other thing he, he doesn't have that I have is the throne. And the next verse tells us Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Watch Saul in this chapter. Because his attitude toward, toward David changes radically. At first, hey, he set him over his armies. 
He bested Goliath. This guy's got to have some military skills. So you're in charge, David. And David starts going out and fighting. And Saul puts him in that position. But after setting him over his armies, he starts to watch and see something's going on. There's a new song in the hit parade. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul now moves into a place of suspicion. He rejects David's right to the throne. He looked at David with suspicion. The issue most people who do do not believe in Christ have, the issue when people talk to you about the Bible, or about Christianity in the church, or about Jesus, the issue is never the real issue. The issues they bring up are never the real issue. Where did Cain's wife come from? Christian, you, you think you know something? Tell me where Cain's wife came from. And in and, and hearing a question like that, you might say, Oh boy, I don't know. I have, that's a tough one. I don't have the answer for that one. You know what the answer to a question like, Where does Cain's wife come from is? What does Cain's wife have to do with you and Jesus? Where does Cain's wife have come, come from? Or what about evolution? Or what about the pygmies? And my response is, what about you? I mean, I understand there are questions out there that may be unresolved for you. But let's start with the first and foremost question, the question Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? That's the issue. And the problem is that people will, as as Saul begins to do with David, he begins to look on with suspicion. He begins to look at David and, and, and say, you know, this one, this one's trying to get onto my throne. That's the issue. People will look at Jesus and say, He's trying to get onto my throne. He's trying to be in that place of control. I don't want that. The issue is never the issues. The issue is the heart. And the heart is rebellious. By the way, that's what evolutionary theory is all about. Let me just throw this thought out to you. If I accept there's a creator, then I have to consider what I have to do with him. As long as I can come up with some kind of a theory or position that says there is no God, there is no creator, then I don't have to deal with it. And so evolutionary theory puts me in that safe place where I don't have to deal with the truth of a creator. But the second I even allow that there might be a greater power out there that made all of us, now I've got to think about my relationship to him. Now I've got to decide, am I going to believe in him or not? How am I going to respond to him? Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Whether we want to have to do anything with him or not, we are going to have to do with him. We're going to have to come to grips with our God, our Creator, our Savior. Well, Jonathan's response to David was to remove himself from the throne. That is the response of a person who comes to see that Jesus is the king. Remove yourself from the throne that that the king might take it. Saul's response is rebellion. To reject David's right to the throne by protecting the throne as his own. And that question just remains. Maybe just carry this home with you tonight. Who is on the throne? Who is the ruler in your life? Who's the boss? Who's in charge? Is it Jesus? He wants to be, if we'll let him. But as Saul protects his throne, again, he begins to unravel. Look at verse 10. It came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. We talked about that last week. I'll just quickly say, if you're wondering, what does that mean, an evil spirit from God? The answer is, it means an evil spirit from God. 
In other words, God is sovereign and has complete authority and control over everything. And even the demons cannot function without at least permission. That sounds a little wild, Rick. Read Job. Satan had to have permission to do what he did to Job. God is sovereign. He's not out of control, trying to scrambling, trying to pick up the demons. Like, oh, we got one over here. Oh, wait a minute, we got one over here. And they're dead. You know, that, he's not doing that. He knows exactly where they are and what they're doing, what they're up to. And in this case, he actually allowed it, sent a spirit that would torment Saul, verse 10. And it came mightily upon Saul. And watch this. He raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hands. Now, I want to notice a couple things in this verse. Obviously, we're alluding to the next verse. He's got a spear in his hand. Something's about to happen here. But, but listen for a moment. Saul, in his hand, held an instrument of war. David, in his hand, held an instrument of worship. Which is an interesting contrast. And I submit to you that that's the difference between someone who's gro- who is growing closer to the Lord and someone who is going further away from the Lord. If you are going up in your relationship to the Lord, you will bear an instrument of worship in your life. In fact, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you will desire to worship. However, if you're going down, if you're moving away from the Lord, you are more likely to be carrying an instrument of war. Are you a spear thrower or a worship leader? Are you carrying an instrument of war or an instrument of worship? Do you find that you're the one at home chucking spears at other people? Getting angry at people for no reason? Or putting people down or or undermining people at, at work? Or are you too busy worshiping the Lord to let what other people do even affect or bother you? What's interesting is Saul is going to chuck this spear three times at David. Three times. And David keeps coming back with his instrument of worship. Something about David's faith here is very subtle and very powerful. David keeps coming back because David was anointed to the throne of Israel. David's going to be king. He knows it. He he knows it in his heart. He understands that. So even Saul's attempts on David's life, which will be many as we continue on in these stories, even Saul's attempts don't threaten David to the point that he fears for his life. He keeps coming back to do the will of the Father who sent him. Of course, part of the problem that David and Saul have is that the women of Israel are praising Saul and David. They're praising the men and they're not praising God for these victories. And so what tends to happen is when the praise goes to men, it goes to men's heads. Whereas the Bible tells us all our praise, honor, worship, glory, everything it should be to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.29 says, No flesh should glory in His presence. No flesh should glory in His presence. The praise is not for man. But the women are singing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And it's part of the problem. The people are worshiping the man, the men, and causing the pride to swell up in Saul that he's not being praised for ten thousands. So Saul holds an instrument of war. David holds an instrument of worship. But, But look at this. It tells us that Saul was raving mad. He raved in the midst of the house. He raved. I, I found this stunning. The word rave in Hebrew is nabah. It's translated differently in other places. It's translated prophesied. 
Here they say he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp. But what it should read, if we're just literally translating it, is he prophesied. Now I point this out for a specific reason. Saul has an evil spirit and he's raving around the house. He is prophesying, but he is speaking from demonic source. And you can do that. People can do that. Can speak, can prophesy demonically. That's what Saul's doing here. Now earlier in chapter 10, verse 10, we see Saul prophesying, but it's because the Spirit of the Lord is on him. And actually, interestingly, later... The end of, I believe, chapter 19, Saul prophesies again with the Spirit of the Lord on him. But in this case, he's prophesying from a demon. So the word isn't raved there, it's prophesied. And if you wonder what this means, it means regardless of the history of the person prophesying, regardless of whether or not someone has prophesied in the Spirit before or not, you always test the Spirit. That's why the Bible tells us this. It tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You cannot count on the fact that someone has previously prophesied in the Spirit of the Lord. You can't say, well, well less. I've prayed with less many times. Watch <laughs> you. Keep an eye on this one. You can't say, well, I trust Him so much, that even though it seems a little weird... What he's saying right now, I'm just going to believe him because he's always been right before. Well, Rick, he was teaching on Wednesday night. He said something that was really off the wall. But you know, he, he's always been right before. So he must be right now. Uh-uh. Don't you ever slide into that place of complacency. You always test. You test what you're being given in the Word. You test what you're hearing in prayer. You test every prophecy. You test every spirit. Because the person may have been in the Spirit before and yet may be being led by a different source now. Now Rick, are you saying that you believe that a person can be demonically possessed if they're a Christian? No, I'm not saying that. But we can be deceived. And we can't share that deceit. So you test, you test, you test. Revelation 19, verse 10. says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, prophecy is going to testify to Jesus. Prophecy is going to illuminate, it is going to elevate, it's going to honor and worship and glorify Jesus. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In verse 4 of that same chapter, he says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now Saul, though he had the Spirit of the Lord at one point, that Spirit has been removed, and now a demonic spirit has Saul prophesying, and he is functioning from the place of rebellion. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David. Okay, so Saul was suspicious in verse 9. Now he's afraid. See, it's deepening the problem, his mentality. He's afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. So suspicion has given way to fear, to dread now. But all Israel and Judah loved David. And he went out 
and came in before them. Saul's jealousy and self-protection. Now, see how it's moved? He's displeased with David back in verse 8. He moves into despair in verse 12. Now he's to the place of dread in verse 15. And it's getting worse and worse and worse for Saul. What is David doing during all this time? While Saul is getting more and more fearful of David, David is out winning battles. David is out being victorious. And Saul is freaking out back in the castle, back in, in his home. He's freaking out. He's worried. He's, he's worrying himself sick. The impact again of David's victories for Saul was greater despair. For his son Jonathan, David's victories just brought about greater devotion. The more David won, the more Jonathan loved him, the more he, he was with his friend. But the more victorious Jesus was, sorry, the more victorious David was, I just I keep thinking in these comparisons, the more there was despair in the heart of Saul. Which should help us understand a little bit why people have trouble with you or with me when we're talking about Jesus if they're in the place of Saul, the place of rebellion. It may bring about despair, fear, a trembling, a worry. Second Corinthians 2.14, Paul illuminates this. He says, thanks be to God, again, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So to the saved and the perishing, we smell like Jesus. He says, to the one, an aroma from death to death but to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? You Bible students, you've probably heard this before. You may know that when the kings went out to war, when they fought in the battles, if uh, one, when one side won and they would march the losing army through the streets, they would literally take the perfumes of that people and they would pour it all over themselves. And as they marched through in victorious procession, all the people of Israel would be praising and singing and, and having great joy at this parade. And the smells would rise up and you would smell these sweet perfumes. It was the smell of victory. Unless you were one of the defeated army being marched through that city, then it was the smell of death. And this is what Paul is referring to. That to some you smell like victory, to others like death. To those who are being saved, victory. You start talking to Jesus about Jesus to a saved person, oh man. Just, just like I see in your eyes, when we start talking about Jesus here, people sit up and they, they get excited. Oh yeah, that's my Jesus he's talking about. But to someone who's not saved, it can be the smell of death. Paul says, who is adequate for these things? For we are not like the many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God we speak, in Christ, in the sight of God. So as you speak in the sight of God, don't consider your inadequacy. You simply smell like Christ. How people respond to you depends on the place of their own heart, just like Saul, just like Jonathan. But Saul is now becoming more and more an instrument of the devil. Verse 17 then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. So Saul is finally following through. He's finally going to give his daughter that David won way back. In about ten years, by the way, are going by through this whole thing. But finally he's saying, Okay, you know, I was going to give my daughter to ever kill Goliath. David not only has killed Goliath, but now he's killed his tens of thousands. So maybe now I, I should do this. But listen to his motive. Saul thought, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
I'll give you my wife, David, but or my my daughter, sorry. I'll give you he's not gonna give him his wife. I'll give you my daughter, but you gotta keep fighting for me. And he's thinking the more I send David out to war, the greater the chance David is going to be murdered. That's his whole motivation. But humble David says to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? No no thanks. It's all right. You know who David looks like here? He looks like, he sounds like another guy, a guy by the name of Uzziah, who is Bathsheba's husband. It's interesting. I, I was just seeing that. You know, Uzziah, David wants this. Is that the right name, by the way? Uriah. Hmm? Uriah. Uriah, Uriah. Yeah, Uriah the Hittite. Okay, I was close. Uriah would come back from battle when David had already slept with Bathsheba, and David would try and get Uriah to go home and sleep with her so that he could make it look like Uriah had gotten his wife pregnant instead of David. You remember the story? Uriah's like... I'm not going to do that. I'm in the middle of battle. I'm not going to let my fellow warriors die on the battlefield while I'm home with my wife. No way. And so he falls asleep there in the, in the gates of the courtyard of the, of the palace. Similar. It's interesting. David, same way of saying, who am I to Saul? I don't, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve your daughter in marriage. Well, so it came about at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholophite, for a wife instead. Interesting. Saul has no integrity. He's playing games with David. He's messing with him. Now in verse 20, it tells us Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David, for a second time, you may be my son-in-law today. Here's chance number two. Tried to give you my firstborn daughter. She's not working out so well. So how about, how about Michael? Now, a couple things to notice about this. Michael's love is probably, more, than, more likely than not, her love is probably infatuation, not really love. I think Michael's looking at David, and, and it's more hero worship. And Saul's intentions here are anything but honorable. Saul knows something about his daughter Michael. She's going to be a snare to David. In other words, Michael's a handful. Michael's the problem daughter. I don't know if she was a wild child. I don't know what it was about Michael. But Saul knew his daughter well enough to know, okay, if I give her to David and he keeps fighting my wars, either he's going to die at the hands of the Philistines or she's going to drive him nuts. Get this daughter out of my house and put her in David's. This is great. He's setting him up. And indeed, she will be a handful for David. She's going to be a pain in his neck. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16 tells us that she despised him in her heart. She would drag him down. By the way, a little side note, infatuation is never a good way to start a marriage. <laughs> and if you're started out that way, that's okay. Just get Jesus into the middle of it as quickly as possible. This whole idea of looking for Mr. Right or the girl of your dreams, it's a bad idea because no man is Mr. Right and no woman is the girl of your dreams. None of us live up to those, those idealistic standards. But in any marriage where Jesus stands in the middle, the marriage can be strong and good and the love can continue and can grow. That's how a marriage remains healthy. Well, verse 22 going on. 
says, Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David, he, he again says, is it, a trivial, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed. That's amazing. He says, I'm lightly esteemed. No one, I'm, I'm just David. I'm just David. Lightly esteemed. David, you're the same one they're writing songs about. You're the ones that they're singing to in the street. They are esteeming him greatly, and yet the heart of David is still a humble heart. He doesn't see it. I'm lightly esteemed. I'm just David. Verse 24, the servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. And Saul then said, Thus you will say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. He still wants to get him out into battle, hoping he's going to die there. When, these, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Now why is that? Because now he has a reason to get married. <laughs> and it's not Michael. David wants to fight. David wants to go against the enemies of the Lord. And so what changed his mind is the invitation to go out after the Philistines. The Philistines apparently, historically, mocked Israel over the issue of circumcision. They would make fun of the Israelites for their practice of circumcision. And so this would be a slap in the face, so to speak, for David to go out and bring back a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Watch what he does says, before the day had expired, verse 27, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king. I don't know how this was handed off. <laughs> one of those times where you're reading scripture and you go, it's got to be true. Because no one's going to make this stuff up. He gave him the full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. And when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. But Saul was David's enemy continually. This is what bitterness does. Bitterness, a seed of bitterness that starts out with jealousy and then turns into suspicion and mistrust and it just gets worse and what bitterness just feeds on itself until a person who might not even realize it becomes your enemy alright let me encourage you if there is someone in your life that you feel bitter toward would you stop where you are and consider the root of bitterness and where it came from and determine with the power of the Lord Jesus to walk away from that to make it right you're only hurting yourself bitterness only hurts the bitter person it's like a poison and it's poisoning Saul the commanders of the Philistines verse 30 went out to battle and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all of the servants of Saul so his name was highly esteemed amazing David has the Holy Spirit no wonder his name is highly esteemed no wonder he's making wise decisions and wise choices now listen, I'm not going to go much further tonight, but for the next several chapters, 
David's life is going to be one series of dangers after another. One set of problems after another, and amazingly not from the Philistines. It's mostly going to come from Saul. He's going to be on the run. He's going to have one problem after another. Skip ahead now to chapter 19. Just listen to the first ten verses. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. And if I find out anything, then I will tell you. Jonathan's in a difficult place here. Jonathan, verse 4, spoke well of David to his father and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. He's a a good ally, Dad. You want him on your side. He hasn't hurt you. He hasn't done any of these things that you fear. He is no threat to you. Verse 5, For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin, or will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Now, this is interesting. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Good, then it's over. Everything's going to be okay now, right? Wrong. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these words and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as formerly. Remember, David had been in his presence playing his worship songs and a spirit went... But now he's back. He is playing again in the court of Saul who had tried to take him out with a spear. And it tells us when there was war again... David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp in his hand. Weapon of war. Instrument of worship. And verse 10, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Now here's what I want you to see. From this day forward, David is on the run. He will never again be back in Saul's presence in the palace. He will never serve him again. He will not fight for his armies. David now is going to run for his life. And he will continue running for several chapters. He's going to be hunted down, chased, and harassed for years. We see what's wrong with Saul. That's the obvious thing. You just read this chapter, you see this jealousy get turned into an inflamed anger and a bitterness and a desire even to murder David. He's insanely jealous and he's wholly rebellious in his heart. Saul's the easy question. But you might ask, what's God doing here? What is the Lord doing? Lord, you anointed David. You had Samuel take that horn of oil to Bethlehem. Remember, Father? And and you had him pour out that oil on David's head. And you gave David the power by your spirit to defeat the lion, the bear, and then Goliath. And you gave him worship and you anointed David. Why are you allowing this to happen in David's life right now? Why is he running from the spear? 
How can you allow this evil to keep coming at David, who is your man, who you anointed? And we can make the quick jump to our own lives, can't we? Lord, I've committed myself to you. I mean, I'm in the Word every day. I'm praying all the time. I'm fellowshipping with other Christians. I have given you my life. Why is it that the spears keep flying? Why am I still on the run here? Why am I still having to deal with so much heartache and difficulty? Why are family members against me and, and friends turning their backs? And I, I just gave my life to you, Lord. We look at David and I really have wondered, what are you up to, God? What are you doing? Verse 30 of, of chapter 18 again tells us David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. And I think there's a hint here. His name was highly esteemed. Young David, anointed David, had killed his ten thousands. Again on Billboard's Top 20, that song was right up at the top. Even the Philistines knew that song. Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his ten thousands. 1 Samuel 21 verse 11 and 1 Samuel 29 verse 5. The Philistines are talking about, yeah, remember that song? They, They sing this in Israel all the time. And they start singing the tune, you know? Everybody knows his name is highly esteemed. He is famous in all the land. But David will not be a one-hit wonder. As far as God is concerned, he does not want this servant to be a flash in the pan. He doesn't want David to, to, to flame up high and then, and then burn out quickly. God is building into David a long-term kingdom. Not just a short-term popularity. So what does that have to do with the throwing of the spears? I believe God is allowing the spears of Saul to keep David from the place of pride. He puts David on the run to teach David to continue to trust him. Not to lean on the laurels of his successful battles. Not to say, hey, I've been anointed. You know, I've got the power of the Spirit on me here. And I am serving God and I'm beating the enemy and they're singing my songs and David could have gone down fast as we see happen all the time in our culture, don't we? Especially with young people who rise to some place of prominence or, or, or fame, how quickly they burn out without the, without the strength underneath them, without the experience to handle what's being given to them. God is teaching David how to respond to Saul's attacks. How is that? With worship. Saul attacks and David writes a psalm. We see it throughout the Psalms. David talks about being in the cleft of the rock. You know where he was? He was at En Gedi, hiding from Saul. When he wrote about the Lord being the cleft of the rock. Worship was how he was to respond to the attacks. God is keeping David safe from the attack. Every time the spear was thrown, it never hit him, did it? Every time Saul took off after David, he never caught him. His well-being was still in the hands of the Lord. And God is preparing David, and this is the best part, to walk in the line of Jesus. God is bestowing upon David a long-term kingdom. One that would exist far longer than David himself. In fact, far longer than the kings of Judah could even realize at the time. Turn your Bibles real quick to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 from verse 7 passage that may be familiar to some of you I hope it is I hope it's becoming more familiar in your lives 
But as the passage to read, when the spears are flying and the enemy is attacking and you feel assaulted and you wonder why, Lord, when I've given you my life, are you allowing this to go on? Listen to Paul's words here. He says, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He says, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or seen in our mortal flesh. I'll tell you what, it is a much more powerful testimony for you to be going through hard times and praising God than it is for your life to be perfect as you're praising God. If someone looks at your life and everything is just all bells and whistles and it's great and everything's happening exactly as it should and you're prosperous and blessed and wonderful and you go to someone and say you really ought to believe in Jesus they can so easily look at you and go how easy is that for you your life is not like my life if you had a few struggles <laughs> maybe I could accept your word a little easier there is so much more power in the testimony of someone who's going through what Mike Cheek is going through this week I'll tell you what when Mike says I believe in the righteous judgments of God. When he says that this week, the week of his wife's passing, you know that man has faith. And you know there is more to Mike and Linda's marriage and their relationship. There's more there than just two people. There is a God at work. This is what Paul shows us. This is what's going on with David. God is shaping long-term royal character in David. So long-term, in fact, that it appears David himself has a future role to play in the millennial kingdom of Jesus. Did you know that? David's rule may not be over with his death on earth. Let me just show you a couple verses here, kind of mind-blowing verses. Jeremiah chapter 30. You may want to jot these down. You can go back and look at them later. I'll read them to you quickly tonight. Jeremiah 30, verse 8. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, speaking of Israel, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they, Jeremiah 30, verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Now, some commentators read that and go, well, David's just an allusion to Jesus. It's Jesus who's going to rule, right? Well, he says, David their king whom I will raise up for them. And there's nothing to hint even that maybe he's being, you know, metaphorical here. But let me read you another verse, Ezekiel 34:23. He says, "Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd, and I the Lord will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I the Lord have spoken. I will be God, and my servant David is going to be a prince. He's going to serve under me in my kingdom." Well, yeah, but couldn't that maybe be Jesus? 
Ezekiel 37 verse 24 My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave my to Jacob my servant in which your fathers lived and they will live on it and their sons and their sons' sons forever and David my servant will be their prince forever. Now again, you might say, well, could that just be a metaphor? Well, there's a lot of metaphors here if it's metaphors for Jesus. And there are plenty of other places where very specifically Mashiach is mentioned as the one who will rule and reign, not David. But David is mentioned here specifically, and there are many reasons to accept this at face value. One other one I'll just throw out to you, and it takes probably more explanation than I've got time for tonight. But we're also told that David, his servant, who will be raised up, will offer sacrifices for sin offerings. If David is Jesus, why would Jesus need to do that? Jesus is the sacrifice for sin offering, right? So anyway, there's a lot to think about there, and I encourage you to look at that and consider it. For myself, I believe David himself is going to be raised. Well, that's kind of weird, Rick. Have you read the end of the Bible? Do you think that's too hard a thing for God to do? I believe David's going to be raised up to serve as Israel's prince. Not as their king, not as not in the place of Jesus, but in Jesus' millennial kingdom. That he's going to be, Prince David is going to be there again. Jesus on the throne, David serving as prince in the great millennial kingdom. But listen, don't be too shocked at that possible pronouncement there. If you're in Christ, you'll be ruling and reigning too. The Bible is clear about that. Revelation 1.6 He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10 He made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. You mean right now in the church? Is the church reigning on the earth right now? Revelation 20 verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. All that to say that the reason I believe that God is allowing the spears to fly and allowing David's first... He never really has the honeymoon period, maybe maybe a short one at the beginning, but Saul goes after him and most of the beginning of David's introduction into the kingdom that he would eventually rule is on the run in the caves of Engedi, down by the Dead Sea, running and hiding out for fear of his life. But God allows this because he is teaching David that the spears may fly, but when they do, worship the Lord. He is showing David that the attacks will come, but when they do, trust your well-being to the Lord. And he is showing David that hardships may surround you, but if so, walk in the line of Jesus. And you will be part of a long-term kingdom, not just a short-term belief. Sadly, a lot of people will come to Jesus in this world, and they'll flame out quickly. If you're having struggle in your life, understand God is building you long term. And He's going to do something marvelous. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for Your servant David. We thank You for what we see going on here. And we pray that You'll teach us and help us to apply these things to our lives. 
Father, give us insight and understanding. And may we hear directly from your Spirit on these things. And trust and know that it's you. To the praise of Jesus Christ, we pray tonight. Amen.